King Jesus, this is your day and we are your people. We are so thankful uh, that we get to come together and worship you, that, that, that we are freed by your cross and by your resurrection to live as your people for your glory. I pray as we turn to Haggai, uh, as we look at this text this week, uh, we would see that it is, oh, there's always, always hope because of you. Uh, that, that when, even when it seems hopeless, even uh, when it seems to be the darkest, that there is, there is dawn. That, that Jesus, that you are our God, you have saved us. Uh, you have it. You have everything. And you're ultimately going to put everything back the way it's supposed to be. Uh, Jesus, we do love you and pray these things for your glory and for our joy in your name. Jesus Christ, amen. Uh, so we are in the book of Haggai. Uh, which is right between the two big Z letters in the, in the uh, 12. So if you're here, you've got Zephaniah on one side, you've got Zechariah on the other side, and Haggai is really teeny tiny, so don't miss it. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we have some on the table over there. Feel free to grab one. If you don't own one, please, please take it home with you. So Haggai, just so you can understand the scene that we're working with here, Haggai is happening between the destruction of Solomon's awesome, super cool temple uh, where the, the, the glory of God used to dwell with his people uh, and the rebuilding of another temple. Uh, the people have been freed from captivity. They find themselves living uh, back in the land. But honestly, things are a little bit hopeless. And things are not going uh, as they're really supposed to. Uh, and I think we as Christians don't need to pretend that everything is okay all the time. That is not the gospel. Uh, Christianity is not pretending that everything is okay all the time. Uh, Christianity is not pretending you're perfect. Christianity is not a lot of things. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that we are actually broken, sinful people who God has come to redeem, who God has come to rescue, who God has come to save, by His grace and His mercy, and there's nothing we can do to earn it, but that we receive this love that He has. There's nothing we did to earn being here and opening His Word and talking about it. And, and in fact, we're fairly hopeless and destitute apart from Him. In fact, completely hopeless and destitute apart from Him. And yet He saves us uh, by His grace and mercy from our sin and from ourselves to be liberated for His glory. Now, this means that He's also got it. Right? The good news of the gospel, he has got it. So as we look at this text, we just really have to ask the question, and, oh, pardon me, and the thing that we can't forget is that we're, we're saved, but we're still saved in the midst of a broken world. There's still sickness here. There's still death here. There's still things not going the way they're supposed to. Now, he has that, but no one is asking you to pretend that everything in your life or in the world in which you live is totally and completely 100% okay all the time because no one actually would believe that if you live here on planet Earth. So here we are in Haggai chapter 2, and we have to ask how we deal with hopelessness. Uh, we're, we're looking at a people who just feel it. it. It's coming through their pores. And how do we deal with despondency in the gospel? How do we deal with this reality of what God's done in, in the grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ? Um, so here we are. We're in Haggai. I'll read our text. Chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Uh, in the seventh month of the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shetael, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of uh, Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant people of Israel, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? When you're reading your Old Testament, 
We have to remember as a Christian person that you're here in this time and this place, and this time and place is different. God is relating to his people in a different way in this time and place. Namely, that Jesus Christ has entered into human history to save us from ourselves, to make us alive together with God. And we have the one, we know the one that we were actually waiting for. The Messiah has come and we know him. Okay, so what do we do with these people? Because we, we don't go to the temple in Jerusalem. In fact, in Jerusalem right now, the temple is a big empty slab sort of sitting in the middle of the city um, that's jointly controlled by is the, the nation of Israel, uh, a secular country ultimately, and sort of this Muslim population who have the other side, right? It, it doesn't look like a place where we would go as Christian people, uh, and as Christian people we have this ultimate sacrifice in Jesus. So why do we even care about the temple? Why do we care about the Old Testament? What? It is like 78% of our Bible, right? So what do we do with this thing? This thing that Jesus said, that thing testified about me. And it really is the only Bible the New Testament church in the early on has. So how do we deal with this? Well, one, one of the things we do is we look at the people of God and how God's dealing with them. And it's helpful to look at them and say, how are we like these people? Where, where, where do I see people acting like I act? Because it turns out people act the same way uh, in different times in different places, Right? You read a history book. It's 1345 in some country you've never heard of, and you hear some story about some people, and it turns out they're acting like people. And you're like, that sounds a lot like that thing I heard about at that other place down the street from where I live, because people honestly haven't changed all that much. There's still sin and selfishness and the common grace of God. But we look at these people and say, how are these people like me? But the good news, more than people not changing, God doesn't change. And so we can look at this and say, what do we see about God here? How is what does this show me about God? Because God doesn't change. And so the, the, the things we see about God, though he relates to us differently today, again, not going to the temple, though he relates to us differently through his son, Jesus Christ, God has not changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So here's what's happening. He says, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? So the Babylonians not just reggae music. The Babylonians are this massive, hegemonic nation-state. The, the Babylonians crush uh, what's left of Jerusalem and Judah. And when they do that, they destroy the temple. Now, all the people that he's talking to here, so that happened in 586 B.C. So all the people he's talking to here would have been little kids or teenagers when that happened. And so some of these people actually remember that, but in a kind of distant and far-off way. The cat who built this thing was Solomon, one of the most famous, fanciest, fancy-pants kings who ever lived. Uh, it was uh, gold and arrayed in, in, in splendor and wonder and was huge and magnificent. And they're looking around saying, we're just a few ragtag people. Like, Solomon's got kings sending him stuff to build this temple, and they're looking around saying, we're like refugees. We're exiles who just got home. How in the world are we going to build that temple? There is a hopelessness in and among these people to do the very thing God has accomplished. And we can look at that and say, well, yeah, it's a big building project. God has called you and me to accomplish great and mighty things. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. Those, that is Jesus' final command to the church in Matthew 28. He's looking at 12 dudes and saying, you are going to go and bring this truth and make disciples of all the nations. By the way, 
all of those nations are all Gentiles who have never even heard of the God of the Bible, let alone His Messiah and what Jesus is going to do. They've never even heard the story. So they're standing there with Jesus and He's telling them to do this enormous, massive thing in the world. That thing is true for us today, right? This small group of people gathered today, that call is no less true for us than it was for them. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. Even just looking at this city that we love, who have not heard the truth, that we and they are sinners who need the salvation and mercy and grace of Jesus Christ, and that the gospel is not how I get to God or what I do to get right with God, but the gospel is that Jesus Christ, because I'm messed up, had to come down and get to me, and that the gospel is the only situation where we don't earn whatever we're trying to get to, but are recipients of that grace and mercy and that he changes lives and that you don't come in here to get cleaned up and fixed up you come in here messed up and Jesus is the one who cleans you up and fixes you up that's an enormous task right? that's an enormous task just the idea of reaching our neighborhood just just reaching this building just reaching the different people who come into this building every just telling people that truth it feels like an enormous task just to tell your neighbor that truth i've had neighbors in seattle that as soon as they found out i was a christian did not want to talk about it and also wanted to avoid me at all costs right you keep baking them cookies and being kind to them eventually they realize you're not a total weirdo even though you believe a first century galilean peasant preacher rose from the dead to save the sins of uh, of all people who ever lived, right? We do, we do believe things that are not just idiosyncratic. Uh, they are mighty and they are different and they are bold and they are amazing. And even as we carry this message with love and grace and compassion and kindness, sometimes people don't actually want to hear it. And you look at that Great Commission, for example. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Here's what God has to say about that. Listen, coming back in on this temple, they're looking at it saying, that building? You want us to build that building? Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? So it's just a pile of rubble, okay? Just a pile of rubble. When the Romans destroyed this second temple that they're about to build in 70 AD, they actually take the pile of rubble and push it off the Temple Mount. So if you go to Jerusalem, there's this big giant pile of rocks because they wanted to make it clear that this was not going to be rebuilt. Um, the Babylonians do a pretty good job of doing very similar things. They're looking, well, what do you mean? How, how are we going to rebuild this building? We're refugees. We're, we're exiles who've just come back to the land. These are people who are just trying to eke out an existence as it is. And we can feel that tension. You're like, you want me to tell my coworkers about Jesus, I live in the most expensive city uh, around and I'm just trying to put food on the table and I'm just trying to figure out how to be a dad or a mom or take care of my kids. I'm just trying to figure out how to provide. I'm just trying to figure out how to squeeze out enough time to paint my house because it's falling apart. How do you want me to do this? And we can sit with the hopelessness and a despondency because what they've done is they've looked at themselves and said, how, how am I going to this. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Listen. 
Verse 4. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Listen. Work. I am with you. This is one of the most fundamental truths of your Christian life if you are a Christian. And in fact, remember I said they're Old Testament people. God's relating to them in a different way than he's relating to us. He's saying, I'm with you. The Old Testament always uses this kind of language. The Holy Spirit's on people or God's with people. In the New Testament, after the resurrection of Jesus Christ on the other side of the cross, the language is in you. The Holy Spirit takes up residence inside of us and is present with us in a spatiotemporal, fancy Scrabble word for the day, space and time kind of way. That right now, no matter what you come in with from the week or go out to into your week, the God of the universe is with you if you are a Christian. Right? Coming back to the Great Commission. What does he say before he tells them to go and make disciples of all the nations? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Our life, our call, what we're doing in the gospel, uh, your life repenting of sin and turning to Jesus and trying to know your Bible and to grow in the truth of the gospel and to love God and to love people is never, ever, ever, ever anything God is ever, ever asking you to do alone. Ever. I mean, not only has he made the church, which is us, right? You are the church. I'm the church. You are the church. We're the church together. That word church means ecclesia. It means gathering. It's the people of God together. Right? And as Christians, that means we go from here, right? They, I can use this illustration because they started making Voltron again, right? Somehow we have this amazing thing where we're separate, but we're still together. But when we're together, we're something more than when we're apart. Something about us, we're two or more gathered in my name, there am I also. Yet we're told the Holy Spirit dwells inside of us. This means though God goes with you when you go from here, something special and wonderful and particular happens when the people of God gather in a situation like this. Or, or even when, you're, when we go from here and we gather in community groups throughout the week, when, when the people of God get together, something special happens. And only in the rarest of situations are we really isolated as Christian people, right? In America, we don't really have the experience of being the only Christian person in your town. And we you know, don't usually have the experience of going to jail for Jesus, which happens. You, know, you hear about these guys who, who love the church and love community. They're, they're in the USSR little dated reference, but this would happen. They're preaching the gospel. They get thrown in jail, and they knew that the price of preaching the gospel was isolation from the church. But even in that circumstance, even in that very difficult, and even by God's grace and mercy, rare circumstance, they're not alone. Whatever task God has called you to, we can feel a despondency. We can feel a hopelessness, uh, especially when you look at whatever Jesus is calling you to and think that you have to do it alone. If you don't know Jesus and you're caught and you're knee-deep in sin and transgression and distancing yourself from God, you're like, but I can't do it. How, how can I clean myself up and turn to God? God is with us. He will help you. He is your grace and your, your mercy. You're saying, I want to know my Bible better. I want to tell more people about Jesus. I want to make disciples more effectively. How am I going to do this? 
empowered by the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. You're not alone. It's not hopeless because you're not alone. But this says a lot about who we are. Uh, that we often try and do things on our own, we often feel alone, and we miss who God is, and God strengthens them. Listen. According, uh, no, listen. Work. So get to work, people. For I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. Now listen to what he says. This is very important. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. If you don't know your biblical history, that's okay. That's fine. It's helpful to know dates and have things to sort of hang uh, the timeline on, so to speak, so you can figure out where you are. What you really need to know is that when Haggai is writing to them, which is probably 529, uh, 15 weeks in 529, so somewhere between August and December of 529, um, the people he's talking about, when he says you, you all really should be y'all we're being technically correct, second person, plural. Saying you all, y'all, right? I made with y'all when you came out of Egypt. These people didn't come out of Egypt. These are not the people who came out of Egypt with Moses. These are people living hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later. But he's saying that promise is durable. The promise I made to those people who I freed counts for you. The covenant I made with them counts for you. It's durable. Likewise, when, when the Bible says, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved, that's not isolated to the first century. That's not isolated to that author and that people. It's not just what God has said. It's what it, God is saying. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus saves us from our sin to life in him, and it's life where we're not alone. We're empowered by him. What God is doing here, he's not just telling them who they are. He's calling them out. You're despondent and you're hopeless because you're trying to depend on you. But he's saying, this is who I am. I am faithful and true. The, the great phrase, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Did you know that is the most quoted Bible by the Bible? That is the most quoted Bible by the Bible. It's referenced more times. Uh, uh, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. God wants you to know that's who he is. And he manifests that abounding love and steadfastness most clearly in the person of Jesus Christ. No, no place does he more clearly do that in the gospel. And it's all really leading up to that wonderful truth of his salvation for us. Right? So here's our problem. In our despondency, in our hopelessness, we forget two major things about who he is. If you are in a spot where you feel like God is calling you to something right now, you know that God has something for you in your life, that Jesus is leading you in your life to something, and you just feel like, yes, I hear you calling, I see you leading, but I can't do it. I can't do it. And, and, and whoever you are, there are plain and simple things that he is calling you to if you're a Christian, right? Love the Lord God all your heart and your neighbor as yourself. You're like, can't. I'm having trouble. I need help. Good. He'll help you. You know, if you're married, you're called to love your spouse. If you have kids, you're called to love your kids. And sometimes that is hard. Sometimes you don't have that in you. Sometimes your tank is empty. Sometimes there are specific things that God has called you to in life, your particular ministry. And you even look at you and you just say, I don't even know how we're going to do that. 
I don't know how. I'm, I'm empty. I'm hopeless. I don't have it anymore. Typically, we forgot one of two things. His kingliness or his kindness. God is kind. Jesus loves you. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. A very, very famous theologian, who I disagree with on very, very many things. Famous German theologian called Karl Barth, so don't go out and buy his book and say I'm endorsing all his theology. But he wrote like a shelf full of systematic theology, right? Amongst other things. And someone said, what is the most important thing you have, what's the most important thing you know? What, What do you have? He, being sort of a a funny German fellow, says, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And though I don't agree with him in everything you wrote, and and by the way, if you write this much theology, you probably don't even agree with yourself half the time because you've written so many things. Um, uh, Though I disagree with him on much, I think the essence of what he said is very true. You forget his kindness. You forget that if God has called you to something uh, in your life that even feels overwhelming to you, he has not done it to be mean to you. The situation that you find yourself in life, uh, that God has even allowed to happen in your life, you are not in it because God is being mean to you. God is not trying to make your life hard. Our next installment in Haggai will even see There are things he even takes away from their lives so that they can see him clearer. There are times in your life when God may even shut a door that you really, 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 really want to be opened that he might reveal himself to you more. And you'd say, God, you were mean to me. I wanted that door open. I wanted to go through door number two. And Jesus says, yes, but door number one is the door where you're going to love me and know me and serve me better. You're going to see me clearer. And when we're thinking with our regenerate hearts, with our new hearts, and who we actually are, of course I want to see Jesus better. Of course that's what I want. Of course shut door number two. If God doesn't want you to go through door number two, do you want to go through door number two? No, he's shutting it because of his loving kindness. We forget his kindness to us, uh, and we can get so hopeless. How, God? How are we going to keep going? How am I going to keep going? We forget his kindness. The other thing we forget is his kingliness. We forget that he's sovereign over all things. We forget that he's got it. We forget that there are things that you might have in your life right now, and you're like, I have to go from point A to point B, and the thing in between point A and point B is impossible. I don't even know how we're going to get to point B because there's this roadblock, there's this thing in the way that's keeping me from point B, and I know God's called me to point B. You know why that roadblock is there? So when that roadblock gets blown up, knocked down, or changed, you can say, only the hand of Jesus Christ could have done that in my life. Only God in his kingship and his sovereignty could have changed that thing. Only God in his grace and mercy could have saved me from my sin. Only God in his mercy could have opened the right doors at the right time. And in fact, if I had tried to engineer my own life, it would have wrecked. He's the king. There's his kingliness. We, we forget that. Both of those things lead us to hopelessness. When we remember his kindness and remember his kingliness, when we look at that roadblock, when we look at that wall, we see it and we say it's impossible. It's time to pray. I can't get through it. I have no steam left. My tank is empty. It seems impossible. There's always the possibility 
if it's not a specific call, something like being a parent or being a spouse or something, yeah, maybe that's, maybe he's got something different for you. But when you know, when you know point B is where you're going, and even if you're like, this seems impossible, I don't even think that's where you want me to go. We get on our knees and pray and say, dear Jesus, if you want me through that wall, you're going to push me through the wall. We're going to evil Knievel this thing. No problem. You're God. You're God Almighty. And it's not a problem for you. We forget his kindness. We forget his kingliness. We forget that he has all things. And that he loves us. And that he's sovereign. And walls are not the thing that stop him. But we can be just as despondent as these people. They're looking at this thing that God's told them. We know God's told them to do it, right? Haggai said, I have, a, I have a note for you from God. It's time to rebuild the temple, and you're not doing it. And they're looking around saying, well, how can we do it the way it was? Solomon's not here to help us. He's been dead for hundreds of years. We don't have money like he had. We don't have nations backing us the way he We don't have it. What are we going to do? What does he say, right? Work. Why? For I'm with you, declares the Lord. So sometimes that means keep, keep putting one foot in front of the other, putting the hand on the plow and not looking back. And even saying, it's, it seems impossible. I don't know how. Keep going. He does. We forget his kingliness and we forget his kindness. Uh, verse 6. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more. Oh, okay, this is good. Fear not. Oh, I missed that one. Oh, man, back it up. Middle of five. My spirit remains in your midst. His tangible presence is with them. And again, as New Testament people on the other side of the crowd, the spirit's in us, right? That's mighty and great. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. I bet there are things in your life that any normal person would say, that is worthy of being afraid of. That's scary. That's hard. That wall is difficult. But when God says, fear not, when we know he's got it, he's got it. For thus says the Lord of hosts. You know, we have to unpack this a little bit and pay attention to what he's doing. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine. He's reminding them who he is. He's king of everything, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So if we try and follow this too tightly, the house they're going to build is honestly not as cool as the one that Solomon built. Herod the Great gives a big, serious remodel in the first century. Honestly, still not as great as the one Solomon built. But beyond that, it didn't bring peace. Pretty much from about this time until all of the Jews get kicked out of the land in 130, there's not peace. The closest, and is this peace, by the way, is Jesus comes to save sinners. He enters on the scene, and people know him. But this is what's called eschatological language. This is looking past the peaks of this temple they're about to build and is beyond and further than that. 
Well, well, how do I know that? Well, because the gold and whatnot has not streamed in from the nations yet. Uh, the peace that he's talking about has not yet come. Uh, it's forthcoming. And any time that something's way off in the future, it goes through Jesus. He's the bringer of the kingdom. It's not yet come. But here's what he's doing here. He's letting them in on something. God is so gracious to let us in on stuff. He's not just told them about who he is. He's told them about what he's going to do. Don't worry. He's going to vindicate the righteous. Don't worry. He's going to bring peace. Don't worry. He's going to put the world back the way it's supposed to be. So we find ourselves in these situations, right? God did not have to give us the book of Revelation. Right? He's a loving father, though. He didn't have to give us any eschatological data. And it's not just in the book of Revelation. It's in Psalms. It's in Isaiah. It's here in Haggai. It's in Malachi. And I can keep going. It's in Zechariah. It's in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's in the book of Acts. It's in Romans. It's in 2 Thessalonians. It's in 1 Thessalonians. It's in 1 Corinthians. Again and again and again and again and again, God affirms to people, starting in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, after the snake and the people wreck everything when he makes a promise and says he's going to send somebody to fix it. All the stuff talking about what he's going to do in the future starts right there in chapter 3. That's very early on in the Bible, by the way. If you don't know your Bible, that's okay. That's in the third chapter in the whole book. It's very, 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 very beginning stuff. And the whole time God keeps promising. And so he says to these people who find themselves in a hopeless condition, two things. This is who I am, and this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to bring peace. I'm going to vindicate the righteous. I'm going to put the world back the way it's supposed to be. If you're driven anywhere with someone, you're giving them a surprise. Four and five, six, seven, eight-year-olds is a great age range for this, but you can do this with anybody, right? There's, there's two ways it can go. You're going to ice cream. It's going to be fun. And they say, where are we going? And my dad would always say, crazy. And as soon as he said that, you know, okay, we're going to Dairy Queen, and you're not going to tell us. Awesome. I will have a dip cone. Thanks, Dad. Or you say, well, I could tell you, but it's a surprise. No, 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 we want a surprise. Where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Right? There's, there's any ways the surprise route can go. And God would not have been an unloving father, and Jesus would not be an unsovereign Lord, and the Spirit would not be an ungracious uh, guide in our lives, as God could have said, I'm not telling you what's going to happen, but it's going to be awesome. What does God do? In their hopelessness, he lets them in. There's going to be peace. This truth about who I am, God's saying about himself, this truth about who I am is going to affect the nations. And when it's all said and done, at the end of everything, the nations are streaming in here. And now, can you imagine this? I mean, these are refugees, right? These are people who have basically nothing. And God is saying, in this place, and you see this in the book of Revelation, is the the new heavens and new earth descend, and they seem to be centered here in Jerusalem, right? I'm not, I'm not making this up. It's Genesis, or Revelation, not Genesis, Revelation. Genesis 21, you'll be lost. You'll be like, I don't see any of this stuff there. It's Revelation 21, 22, 23, where the dwelling place of God is with man, uh, where he's making all things new. Uh, we see it all over the Bible, though. This is the trajectory of all of history through the cross, grace, and mercy of Jesus Christ is the restoration of all things. Romans 8, another, Romans 8 is another great chapter on it. And just like us, right? So this people 
gathered here along with the other churches that are gathered around Seattle, around the world today. Even the most impressive, biggest, smoke machine blowing church in America or in the world, wherever the biggest, fanciest church, someone's always the, it's an arms race, someone's always the biggest, fanciest church somewhere, right? So somewhere, some place, there's the biggest, fanciest church. And I'm not even saying those aren't big, fancy people who love the Lord with all their heart. Whatever that thing is, is about equivalent when you compare that to Jesus Christ returning and restoring all things. That's about equivalent to these people being told, this small gathering of people, you refugees here in Jerusalem, right here, this, this spot, this is going to be the origin point when God puts everything back the way it's supposed to be. It's going gonna, it's gonna to come right here. It's going to land right here. That's almost unbelievable, right? So like you look at us, right? I'm not a particularly, I, I'm not actually this tall in real life. I'm about two, three feet shorter, right? The dirty dozen, right? The magnificent seven, whatever. Through us, through the other churches that are on earth today, the ones that are coming in the future, and through those saints who are in heaven, through us, through imperfect, broken sinners, saved by the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ, he's working out that great commission. Go, therefore, into all the disciples. He's working through us and through our brothers and sisters around the world to take the message of Jesus to the ends of the earth. Fairly unimpressive people such as myself. Right? I'll, I'll pick on me. Not super impressive. Talk a little too fast uh, and not really this tall. No inside talking voice to speak of. Born without one. Only loudness. Loudness, which is good for my particular vocation. Little rough, trying to keep children asleep. Even my whisper is loud, right? God's working through them. He's working through us. In your most hopeless moment, you are an ambassador of Christ to a broken world that God's working through. On your worst day, you're a loved child by God that he is using for his purposes to put all things back the way they're supposed to be. So in this text, I think he does three things with them and their hopelessness and their despondency. Number one, God tells them who they are, right? He, he both reminds them that they're being despondent and they're being hopeless, but then reminds them that they're his people. This is what he does for us as we're becoming Christians, Right? When I'm not a Christian, I'm sitting there. This is my actual story. I'm reading the Bible, and God shows me that I'm completely bankrupt. I'm a sinner, and I need salvation. Thank you, Jesus. And he saves me. Why? How? By showing me who he is. <laughs> right? He shows me the grace and mercy of his son. He saves me from myself for, for his glory and for my joy and in my life. And now as a Christian, when I'm in sin, when you're in sin, in God's grace and mercy, he shows us who we are. He shows us what we're doing that is different uh, and contrary to his gospel and his grace and mercy, right? But as a Christian, he also reminds you who you are. You're not that old person. You're not that sinner you once were. You're a beloved child of God. And oftentimes, just like the lost person, the saved person, needs to hear about who God is. We have a gracious, loving, and wonderful God hasn't just saved you, but is saving you and will save you. 
And when we open the pages of Scripture, we don't just hear who He is, but what He's ultimately doing in the universe. He's bringing this thing to completion. The lion will lay down with the lamb. He's restoring all things. And His people will live with Him and dwell with Him without sin, uh, empowered by His Spirit in the face of Jesus Christ forever. And so on our darkest day and in our worst moment, we still have eternity with Jesus to look forward to and the reality that it's not dependent on me, but dependent on Him. And He is working all things no matter how slow I think He's going. Thank you, Peter. Don't count it as slowness because God's moving. Well, I want door A open today. God, well, good news is God doesn't treat us like a parent who just gives a a fit-throwing child whatever they want. Because nothing worse happens to a child than you just give them everything they want whenever they're being demanding about absolutely anything. That goes really, really poorly for you about 25 years of age or sooner. It doesn't actually help. God's changing us. He's working in our lives, and we know he's going to vindicate the righteous. And he knows he, we know he's going to bring us home. And we know he's going to change uh, this world to be new. And we know that he's doing those things. So even on our worst day, we know where we're going. And we know what he's doing because he's told us. I'm going to pray for us and we'll take communion. King Jesus, we love you. We know that we don't deserve your grace and mercy. We didn't earn your grace and mercy, but that you've extended it to us as a free gift and to all who would call upon the name of the Lord. I pray for any of us sitting in hopelessness right now, any of us sitting with an empty tank right now, any of us looking at a situation in our life and saying, how am I going to do this, uh, that you would remind us again who you are, Jesus. You would remind us of your loving kindness to us. You would remind us of your kingship to us. You would remind us of your grace. You would remind us of your mercy. You would remind us of your mighty plans for all of creation that by your mercy also include us. So Jesus, I just pray that we would see where we are like these people, where we can look around and think that it's hopeless, but also like them, we would see who you, who you are and what you're doing. We love you, Jesus, and pray these things for your glory and for our joy. In your name, Jesus Christ, amen.